Welcome to the Marketing Stir Podcast by Starista, probably the most entertaining marketing podcast you're going to put in your ears. I'm Jared Walls, Associate Producer and Starista's Creative Copy Manager. The goal of this podcast is to chat with industry leaders to get their take on the current challenges in the market, but also have a little fun along the way. In this episode, Vincent and AJ talked to Nick Panayi, Chief Marketing Officer at Amelia. He discusses the practical uses of conversational AI, as well as his own career evolution. He also explains how he sees account-based marketing as a discipline, and not just a marketing strategy. AJ loves Mondays, and Vincent needs more coffee. Give it a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, it's me, Vincent Petrovesa. That must mean one thing and one thing only. It's another episode of the Marketing Stir brought to you by Starista. Thank you so much for listening and liking us and subscribing. Wow, we are well over about 48,000, but maybe hopefully by the time this comes out, 50,000 people who've listened to this podcast that my co-host and I just started because we had a little downtime, but we also wanted to bring great content and great interviews and guests to the people. Starista, who are we? We're an identity marketing company. We have our own data, B2B, B2C. We help companies market to that data, get new customers, send us your data. We will cleanse it. We will hygiene it. That's the same thing. I realized that, but that's the double cleansing method. I'm just making that up. But again, we'll clean your data. If it's fragmented, we will add data to it, make it more marketable. We have our own DSP, Adster. Email me, vincent at starista.com. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, the best part one of the best parts. We have our guest, and then we have this next person, my partner in crime, my co-host, ladies and gentlemen, the CEO of Starista, Mr. AJ Gupta. What's going on, AJ? Hey, Vincent. I think you're missing on a couple of cups of coffee today. I know, right? I need more energy. That's because it is the start of the week, and I have a six-month-old at home and a three-year-old who doesn't listen and doesn't sleep. Yay. Here's uh, some more coffee here. <laughs> Yeah, luckily for me, I am uh, uh, I'm well rested from my weekend naps, so I am uh, I'm ready to go. Monday is my favorite day, as you know. Yep, AJ had uh, a little vacation, right? You kind of had a little bit of time away. I did. Yeah, we went to uh, Horseshoe Bay. It's a nice little. Uh, uh, normally, we stay at the resort there, but because of COVID, we had a little bit of an Airbnb stay there. That's nice. That's nice. Got to get away every once in a while. I have to do that myself soon here in New York City. The city is crazy, but that's a whole other podcast. Let's focus on the positives. This next guest, positive guy. I like him very much. He is the CMO of Amelia. That's formerly IPsoft, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Nick Panayi. What's going on, Nick? Hey, Vincent, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. Oh, oh, I love it. I love it. You see, my energy's back, Nick. That's all I needed is just to hear your voice. Uh, you know, that's all I need. I didn't need coffee, AJ. I needed a little bit of <laughs> Nick's energy as well. Nick, how's everything going? What have you been up to? I haven't uh, talked to you in a little bit. It's been a wild and crazy time here at Amelia. It's, uh, you know, we're in a space that's uh, growing fast and it's, kind of morphing in front of our eyes. So from a marketer standpoint, this is a, a dream come true. You know, an opportunity to do some category marketing as well as some 
company marketing at the same time. So, and it's an exciting space. I love the technology. So it's been crazy. It's been fun. I love it. My, my first question to you is you know, just tell the listeners out there about Amelia, formerly IPsoft, what you guys do there. Yeah, so Amelia is a, a conversational AI company. Um, and obviously AI, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of information about AI. AI is a very, very broad and wide space. Conversational AI is all about understanding human variance in how we communicate and allowing machines to communicate with us as effectively as humans do. Uh, so obviously for an enterprise, that's quite useful. Uh, because you're able to put a conversational AI agent, we call ours Amelia, in front of customers, whether they're internal customers or external customers, let them communicate with Amelia what they wish to communicate and let them ask what they need to have done and Amelia will then get it done for them. So it's designed for the enterprise and it's a solution designed not only to communicate and understand human variants, but to actually turn around and do something about it, take action on behalf of the customer. That's what we do. And tell us about your role within the organization, Nick, as chief marketing officer. And then one step further, we always love to talk about how you got into marketing. What was the path? Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I am the chief marketing officer here at Amelia. I've been here about a year and a half. I am blessed with an amazing team. Uh, and like I said, a fantastic product and a white hot marketplace. So I can't ask for, uh, for too much more than that. I've uh, spent uh, my entire career so far in um, the technology space in companies large and small. Uh, right before uh, this, I was with a company called DXE Technology, a large systems integrator. Uh, I've spent some time with Avaya and voice over IP communications, and I've spent some time with Compaq HP. Uh, so all, all in uh, technology, uh, always in marketing. Uh, I've done everything you can imagine in marketing. So you can kind of consider me uh, someone who's kind of grown up in marketing and grown old in marketing, if I were to <laughs> also admit that. <laughs> Uh, grown up and grown old in marketing, but it's uh, it, it's been quite a blast. Uh, I've had a variety of different roles, and uh, kind of all paths led me to this point now. So it's uh, it's great to be here. And Nick, how did you uh, get into the marketing world in the first place? Well, it, it started with a decision uh, on the education front. That's what I decided uh, I wanted to uh, to get a degree in, and and I really got to know the topic from an academic standpoint, but I started my career um, in a company that was doing online services back in the day when people didn't quite know what the internet is and what to make of it. Um, and my job in marketing there was to, in essence, figure out what people would pay for and why, uh, in essence, kind of product marketing. So that was my first really taste of what marketing is all about. And I absolutely loved it. I, again, I, those are my two loves of my life in addition to family and, and all that good stuff but from a professional standpoint is technology and marketing and I was able to blend the two together and from there on like I said I took on very different roles from marketing strategy marketing planning marketing operations uh, advertising branding I've, I've done I've either done or worked very closely with every function in marketing throughout my career so it's with every role I've kind of reaffirmed uh, that this is the place for me and 
this this happens to also be aj one of those functions that i tell the young people coming in um very rare to see a function balance both science and art in a single function right so you can have a whole spectrum of roles within marketing uh, and go anywhere from analytics and the pure sciences and dashboards and and big data in marketing and predictive and all of that fun stuff all the way to picking colors with a creative agency and fonts and and designs and everything else in between so it's an amazing spectrum of a of a function um so it, it it gives you so many opportunities to do a variety of things within the same function that's what i love about it nick you you majored in marketing at a time where uh, i don't think a lot of the universities even had marketing as a as a major so is that something you were passionate about ever since you were growing up that you wanted to get into it well aj i said i'm old i'm not that old <laughs> <laughs> did you have books at your school <laughs> Nick? <I> never... <laughs> they did have marketing yeah I, I don't know how far before me but i uh but i will say this uh, marketing as we know it now is very different than the marketing i grew up learning and, and even now some of the early roles right so i you know it's funny when digital marketing came about you know there was a debate is it digital marketing or is it marketing in the digital world and i think it's the latter there is no marketing that is not digital uh, impacted in some way even the most physical of marketing tactics have a digital element to them whether it's the planning phase the uh, you know the invitation phase to a physical event uh, the design elements from a digital standpoint everything has a digital element to it so I think digital marketing, as we know, marketing in the digital realm was nowhere near, um, you know, the the radar when I was uh, studying uh, marketing in school. But it wasn't much of a leap I, I, for me, at least, because I love technology. I will tell you there was an interesting point where digital marketing was actually starting to become more of a force, and there was a dichotomy in what I call. Uh, digital migrants and digital natives, right? A, a digital migrant is somebody like me. I'm actually an, an immigrant as well in real life, but a digital migrant is somebody who grew up in traditional marketing, saw the potential of digital marketing or marketing in the digital realm, and really got up to speed with the tools, the technology, the very different way of thinking. That is a digital migrant. Digital natives are, of course, the folks that have grown up with digital uh, as a consumer, so they understand it very deeply from a native standpoint. They didn't have to be explained what digital marketing means versus traditional marketing. And there's a third population that are no longer in marketing. Those are the ones that didn't make the, the trip, just like immigrants. There's some immigrants who stay in the old country. There are some marketers who stayed with traditional marketing, just couldn't make the leap into digital marketing. Uh, but I was one of the, happy uh, migrants uh, to go from traditional marketing to, to digital marketing it's been it's been an, uh, a really an exciting accelerating uh, journey every day you turn around there's a new vendor there's a new technology there's a new way to to do things to me that that's exciting uh, to other people that's exhausting <laughs> you know so mm -hmm. for me it's exciting you know I, I I love it. He's, you know, well, back when you went to college, it was their majors. I need more coffee, AJ. You need less today. I love it. I love it. 
That don't was fun. Don't let the gray beard fool you. Yeah. I told you we have fun here on the marketing stair, Nick. Thank you for uh, thank you for you know having fun with us. So the you I wanted to go back to something you said there because a lot of people that I talk to they often view marketing as a combination of arts and math. You see it as a combination of arts and science. Elaborate on that. Yeah. Well, math was my probably one of my weakest subjects ever. Uh, Same. Uh, but. Uh, thankfully, digital marketing is not, there's math underneath, okay? But digital marketing is not about understanding math. It's about understanding the behavior uh, of the modern consumer, how they consume data, how, you know, to analyze, in essence, the digital journey, what we call the digital exhaust. All of those things are now um, approachable uh, by anyone and everyone who has an interest because of the, the amazing technology we have available to us. Just think about uh, Google search, right? It's the most plain white web page in the world, the most simple user experience that hides the most complex algorithm probably in the world. You know, so, you know, because there's complex math behind something doesn't mean you need to understand the math behind it. You just need to appreciate, um, in essence, what goes into it. And that's how I, I look at it. That's why I call it science. You know, it's a lot more than math. There's behavioral sciences. There's, you know, uh, predictive. Um, there's some math in there as well. But, you know, statistics, there's all kinds of, of sciences in there. Uh, and most, most importantly, the behavioral part now, you know, like I said, marketing is one of those functions that has such a broad spectrum of, of things that we need to study and understand that's kind of getting into psychology, really understanding the behavior and how the behavior has switched from doing a lot of the, the researching with humans versus researching on digital realm and all of that. What does that mean? How many things should we present to the prospect before they get sick of us? At what time should we engage so that we don't look uh, like, like we're like, uh, uh, you know, something, nefarious but that we're actually trying to help uh, how do you let them know how much you know without spooking them and scaring them away you know all of those things are you know into the realm of psychology and, and behavioral sciences and i want to talk about something you said there as far as the cadence of when 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 to reach out but what methods of marketing, you know, being a, this is the marketing stir, we love to get down to the nitty gritty, Nick. What methods of marketing are you using that are working? Is it account-based marketing? Are you using email, direct mail? Tell yeah. us. Yeah, so to me, anyone that, that selects one of those or a few of those is missing uh, something very important, right? Marketing is all about a, a collection of outreach tactics, right? Uh, and, and it's the sequence and the timing of those tactics that makes the difference, not necessarily the single, there isn't a silver bullet that you say, you know what, if I could only just nail email or if I could only just nail advertising or search, everything has to work together. So that's part of the fun in marketing is that there's no easy answer. You have to kind of balance all those things together. 
you know, there's a question always, uh, you know, does the email still work? Yes, it still works. Look at your inbox, you know, it still works. Somebody somewhere is getting paid to send you an email. Uh, and, you know, economics works so that, you know, they wouldn't be doing it if there was no money in it. So that still works. But does it work alone? No. Does cold calling work? That one is, I would say, that one is on pretty close to dying. But there's still a role for, you know, a voice outreach. I don't know if that is the traditional phone, but some sort of a human outreach. So all of those tactics. Now, to go to specific areas that, again, not necessarily a silver bullet, but things that should be in everyone's toolbox. Account-based marketing is one of those. And I think last time we spoke, uh, Vincent, I think we talked about IBM a little bit more. To me, um, that is probably one of the most powerful, um, not tools, powerful methodologies, powerful ways to think about marketing. It's marketing to a market of one. Or, or targeting a market of one. So that is not for every customer you have, it's for the tip of the pyramid, it's for the most strategic, most important customers you have. But in those cases, you are doing really fine-tuned, tailored marketing, and we have the tools now like never before to make it really like an optimal outreach for them not for you it's not optimal for you doesn't matter is it optimal for them the way you communicate are you sharing with them information that they'd like to know are you adding some valuable knowledge to their brain that they didn't have before and you can only do that if you study each customer at a time clearly you can't do that for every customer so you have to subsegment and only do that for a select group of customers but i think that is a a methodology that should be part of every marketing mix out there, in my view. Now, back to my previous point, that is a methodology, that is a way to think about things. Tactics underneath are still the same tactics we deploy. You can still do an email outreach and a social outreach, and even some, some out-of-home advertising. We've, you know, in previous life, we've done some out-of-home advertising for a specific customer. You know, that we, we put billboards outside their headquarters. You know, so and, 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 you know, cars with our branding on it, driving around their neighborhood, you know, you can you know, target like that. that. Now, as far as they were concerned, we, it looks like we we're all over the place. They didn't know that we're targeting just them. But to them, it looked like we we're spending millions and millions of dollars because everywhere they turned, here was brand A, you know. So that is using multiple tactics, but it's a way of, of thinking about marketing outreach. Nick, uh, in my younger days, <laughs> we, we used to know the company better as IPsoft. So uh, would love to know when the brand changed and what the uh, thought process was behind the change. Yeah, that's a great question. So the thought process began on my interview, uh, you know, for the job. Really, I, I was interviewing with the founder and CEO and, and um, you know, Chayden Dubay is his name. He's one of those brilliant, brilliant men, very, very um, luminary in this space, really um, thought-provoking conversation. But then I'm looking at this amazing technology and this amazing intelligent virtual assistant called Amelia, and then the name of the company just didn't do that. It didn't meet my perception 
of what a cutting edge AI company looks like. Why? Because the name was introduced in 20 years ago. It had to do with something completely different than AI. AI didn't really come into this company's realm until about 70 years ago. So my view is this, like if, if the crown jewel is Amelia, then the company name should be Amelia Plus. Um, it's, a, it's crisp, it's clear, it's memorable, and it's personified, which goes to the center of what we do. We are all about um, teaming human and digital assistants to be able to um, eliminate boring work in the workplace and unleash people's creativity. So it is about Amelia. Why wouldn't the company be called Amelia? That was my thought process. So I planted the seed. Uh, it it took uh, it took hold, and you know we picked the right time. And in October, October first of this year, really just a couple of months ago, we launched the company uh, Amelia, and we positioned it so that people understand there's a bridge. It's Amelia, an IP soft company, but as of now, the the name of the company is Amelia. Great. And Nick, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, who your target audience is uh, and uh, who some of your well-known clients are. Yeah. So the target audience is actually, um, there's, it's the virgins there. There's, there's two types of people that we talk to. Uh, one is that the, uh, of course, there's a CIO uh, and his or her organization, right? Because at the end of the day, this is a technology. Having said that, um, injecting AI uh, artfully, carefully, strategically in a company has significant implications in go-to-market. So this, this rises up to the C-level in terms of the final decision. It's not just another app that you bring into your company or just another technology. It fundamentally changes the way you go to market in a good way. So many times decision makers are the C-suite with the CEO, of course, being the ultimate decision maker and the CFO. But for example, right, a lot of our use cases have to do with uh, customer care, you know, especially now, right? Think about COVID and what that has done. I don't know if any of you have been on the phone trying to talk to an airline or to a hotel or to a phone company or any of these companies, right? You know, you know, bear with us because our whole times are like 45 minutes. You know, you're like number 558 in line. It, it, you know, nobody could have predicted the, the three or four X, the call volume coming in. So what does that mean for us? Well, we'll put Amelia in front of the call center. She can answer every one of those calls with zero hold time, take care of 80% of the questions because you can teach her just like you teach any human to understand all of your policies and the questions and answers usually is an 80-20 rule. There's 80% of the questions are about 20% of the topics. Um, she handles it and to the degree that a user says, I wanna to speak to a human, she escalates to a human and then stays on the phone, Amelia does, listens to the human discussion, human to human, and then understands it. And then she's able to answer the next call from that. That kind of use case, is, is going through the roof right now because of, of COVID, that's one. Another use case is IT help desk. Again, look at all of us, right? We're at home, working from home. Many of us are used to working from home. Many companies did not have a lot of home employees. Think about uh, the VPN setups and the password setups and setting up your home office. 
So a lot of IT help desks have been suffering because of that. That's another use case where Amelia plays their role. And then HR, uh, HR is also suffering because a lot of people are asking about all kinds of policy questions about vacations and, and travel expenses and whatever, or expenses of setting up a home office. So we have all of those use cases um, that, that we are, uh, we're helping customers with. It doesn't, it doesn't limit itself there, but it's, um, those are the prevalent use cases. I give you one name, uh, Telefonica, that you recognize. It's you know the largest uh, telco provider in uh, in Latin America, in well in Spain, but also a very very big player in Latin America. We handle more than I think now it's like something like six million calls a month uh, for Telefonica. Just think about the cost implications of that, and also the customer satisfaction implications because she answers the right. Uh, she answers right every single time because she learns. That's the beauty of AI versus a chatbot where it's a human scripted decision tree, you know, a fancy FAQ versus AI like Amelia, where she actually learns on the job. She can scale up to support many, many use cases and she communicates like a human would. And also she speaks a hundred languages dynamically, right? So, you can have a conversation, you can start speaking one language and switch to the other language mid-conversation and she will converse in that language. You know, it's kind of hard to find a human agent that can speak 100, 100 languages uh, dynamically, right? So Telefonica, Bankia, uh, SEB, another bank in the Nordics, uh, Unisys is a huge partner, um, Deloitte is a partner of ours, um, Entity Communications, uh, BNP Paribas, Many, many customers, a lot in the financial services uh, community, in the telco industry, in the telco industry, healthcare, um, a, lot of, a lot of good success stories. And there's still so much more. We're just scratching the tip of the iceberg in terms of the, the possible use cases that conversational AI can handle. And in, Nick, during 2020, we've talked to a lot of companies on the podcast, some companies that business has been hurt some companies that uh you know this pandemic because of the products and services that they have have thrived because they're solving a solution like you just mentioned has that been the case for amelia you know you just mentioned travel industry you just mentioned hospitality has aspects of amelia's business grown because of 2020 so that's a very very interesting question um and there isn't a simple answer. Here's, here's why. A few companies like ours are sitting in a position where we can be part of the solution, right? You know, you have Zoom, for, so look at what happened with Zoom, right? Uh, and other companies that are in essence gearing towards this, this new environment that we're in. We're in that small camp of companies that can actually benefit other companies in the middle of the pandemic. Having said so, the pipeline is growing uh, faster than we can keep track of. Having said that, the reality is that most companies, regardless of their intent, their businesses are hurting too, right? So cracking open a budget is not as simple as, and, as it used to be uh, because we are in the middle of a pandemic and their business dropped off 60%. So even though the need is more clear, the pipeline is growing like crazy, 
business hasn't quite followed that same trend. It's, in, it's improving, but at a slower race, uh, uh, it's at a slower, a slower pace because budgets are hard to come by. Having said that, if it's a, a existential threat for the company, they'll find the money and get it done. Cost centers are one of those things. If your cost centers are not able to answer the customers in less than three minutes, five minutes, you are in big trouble. And, and they're going to remember that way past the pandemic. So a lot of companies are prioritizing money for that. My point is, it's not as simple as, you know, hey, it must be growing like, like, uh, like a shuttle. It's growing, but we're limited by customers' ability to access budgets. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, and I appreciate that answer there. We, like I said, we've had some companies where it's travel related and they've been hurting, but really revamping. There's other companies that specialize in digital transformation that have been thriving. So I, I appreciate the answer there. Nick, you mentioned it before, and of course we we love talking about it because Trista is a data company, but uh, what's the importance that your company puts on data? And, and are you using that data for growth, for example? Would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, look, from a marketing standpoint, uh, data is, is the key to the kingdom, right? I mean, if data is knowledge and knowledge is power, right? So, and, and we in marketing have more knowledge than anyone else in the company on one thing that everybody cares about, customer behavior. Right? Do people care about accounts receivables? Yes. So accounting has access to accounts receivables. Not everybody cares about accounts receivables. Do people care about facilities? Yes. So facilities has information there. That's power. We have information about customer behavior that drives the top line of the company. So we place huge significance on data. Um, as any company, you know you struggle with the abundance of data. So we've, we've gone from having not enough data to having overabundant uh, data cheaply. The question is, what do you do about it? Data by itself doesn't solve any problem. Data solves problems when it becomes knowledge. And the difference between data and knowledge is humans. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, so you have to have smart humans who know what to do with the data to basically turn it into knowledge for the company. And that's always the challenge. Um, I can, you know, and over my years in marketing, especially in larger companies where I had a bigger budget, frankly, I was able to really experience a lot of fantastic companies, a lot of fantastic data products, uh, especially for B2B uh, that I have access to. The question is, I don't, you know, I want to make sure that I can do something about it. So we kind of regulate ourselves down or kind of we calm ourselves down or myself more than anybody else with making sure that we only get data that we can do something about. So the fundamentals, marketing, um, the, the, the marketing automation platform, right? So that data, being able to really understand uh, attribution and which channels are working, which channels are not working. Website traffic, obviously the web analytics, social analytics. Uh, we have some predictive analytics as well now with a couple of players that I'm familiar with. Uh, so those things are absolutely important to us. But again, the, 
the value is in what you do with it uh, versus just accessing it. And Nick, what are some of the tools that you're using in your marketing stack that uh, you like or have found interesting in terms of if you have favorites when it comes to CRM and marketing automation and other tools? Of course, I, I will tell you, I'll answer this um, based on multiple company experience, you know, because sure. I've only been here a year. And, uh, and like I said, if I compare my budget uh, at a $25 billion firm versus my budget now, it's, it's a little bit different. <laughs> uh, but um, some of the best predictive uh, tools out there is demand base has always been a favorite of mine. I work with demand base for Sure. As long as they've been around, actually, I started working with them where they were just purely analytics, not even a marketing uh, solution. Mm-hmm. Um, Six Sense is also a company that I would keep an eye on. Uh, and I know Amanda and the team very well. And again, we worked with them ever since their inception in a different company. And they do some very, very interesting things. Tech Target is a company that we're partnering with now. And they have an interesting um, platform obviously what they have different is that they have knowledge that is first party knowledge right because that's accumulated from hundreds of websites that they have gearing towards the technology marketplace they're using that first uh, uh, first party technology uh, data to actually develop their own predictive model uh, which and they've done a pretty good job at that so in the predictive realm, um, those three are very good. I've, I've started to talk with G2. I haven't worked with them extensively there, but, but I know some people there and I'm very impressed with what they're doing with their predictive engine because everybody's starting to move there. They're coming at it from a different place, obviously. They're coming at it from the you know, community ratings and rankings. But again, think of the intelligence that they can gather from everyone that's ranking a particular platform and, and people that are looking for how people are ranking. So in the predictive space, I may be missing some, but those are the, the key players. I'm very, um, I'm, we're using HubSpot now. I'm very happy with them. You know, I think HubSpot meets a need for a certain size and a certain level of, of complexity, right? So for the size we're in now, uh, it's just about right. It's actually uh, perfect for us. Uh, worked with Marketo before. Um, and Marketo is obviously, especially given the, uh, the the uh, acquisition, uh, the Adobe acquisition, they are, I would say, the premier solution, especially in the enterprise. And I was very happy with them when we were using them uh, before. Um, and then, of course, is it Salesforce on the, on the sales side of the house? Um, so that integration is working quite well. I will tell you, again, depending on, on the size of the company, some of the HubSpot sales solutions are actually very interesting as well because it's one-stop shop um, but again you you may outgrow that beyond a certain size um, of course linkedin of all the the outbound uh, targeting activities we use uh, linkedin uh, extensively love those guys i worked with them for a long time uh, and we work a lot with, um, with google of course who wouldn't uh, for search and for gdn and some YouTube advertising. So those are the ones that I, I, I like a lot. You know, I've, I've seen many, many tools in the, in the past, uh, and I, I probably, you know, drive you nuts going through the whole list, but that's, those are top of mind right now. Hey, you, you make a great point, Nick, about the uh, size of the company, because we, 
started using Salesforce way too early when we had two salespeople. And most of the time we had no idea what we were doing. And uh, until recently, when we have a uh, part-time Salesforce developer, now we're starting to see the uh, value of Salesforce as we're adding more salespeople every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But you know, I would say AJ is, is the number of salespeople and the sales organization maturity and, and cadence and discipline. Right, because that needs to go. Even if you have a small company, if you have the discipline and maturity to work with Salesforce, that's great. But you won't be able to get the most out of it unless you have the actual, um, the intangible part, which lies with you now with Salesforce. How committed are you to the sales science? You know, right. and if you are, then you can get a lot out of it. If you're not, you might as well just go with a much lighter tool because it's you're probably overpaying them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Nick, is it fair to say you probably use ABM as a strategy? I absolutely, uh, you know, ABM is one of those things that I, um, I feel very passionately about. Actually, my previous company, we won a serious decisions award for the, the best program uh, for that year. Uh, I will tell you one thing. Here's a challenge with ABM. Uh, ABM, uh, to be successful needs ABMers, right? So a lot of people misunderstand ABM to be a platform or a tool. It's not. Uh, ABM is a discipline. It is account-based marketing. So you need account-based marketing professionals to be able to face off with no more than three to five accounts each and do it well and do it right and deeply and work very closely with the sales team and be a virtual extension of the sales team and be respected as a, as a extension of the sales team and all of that good stuff and think about strategies together and then you can fully activate ABM. So I'm holding off on really doing ABM until I have ABMers to do it right. I'm doing ABM like tactics. You know, if you go on LinkedIn and I can target a particular company, and only them at different levels at different. Yes, that's a tactic, but it's not a full ABM program. Uh, and I will tell you one thing that's always very interesting. I think, uh, Vincent, we may have had this discussion before, but I, there's always this, this uh, interesting definitional discussion that I have with other marketing friends where people say, I'm doing ABM. I go, really, what, what are you doing? Well, you know, we're, we're targeting this 20 accounts with this effort. I'm like, the minute you go beyond one account, you're not doing ABM. You're doing segment marketing. So stop calling it ABM because it's not account-based. No account is the same as another account. I don't care if the same industry or even if they're in the same zip code and the exact same size of employees. They're not the same. So to do account-based marketing, you have to do it with one. Uh, if you take an account-based marketing principles and you're doing it one to few, then it's segment marketing. It happens to be a smaller segment. Uh, but it's a very, very big difference between sitting down with sales and saying, what's our strategy? Who are the decision makers? Who are the drivers? What timing? What solutions should we reach out to? What are they saying on social media? Who are the people that we should try and influence? You can't do that for a segment of 50. Not well. You're doing segment marketing. So that's, I see that as a very, very different discipline. And again, back to what I said before, one that every company should have. I don't care how small you are. You have a most important customer, even if it's one. Start with one. Start focusing on them first. Then you hit them uh, and you win. Then you go to two or three accounts. Uh, but never go beyond that ratio of one to three, one to five max. 
meaning one IBM or two, like five accounts. Mm. Otherwise, they start losing, you know, physically, there's not enough time and attention to spend to more than five, if you want to do it right. Anyway, see what happens. You mentioned ABM. I get all passionate and I talk for like. <laughs> yeah. That's well, well, that's great. You know, because ABM is a topic that does come up on the marketing stir uh, on occasion. But when it does, our listeners love talking about it. And then I, I love talking about it myself because I'm, yeah, I'm strictly on B2B here as well. I, I think it's fair to say Nick has the most passion in the few minutes. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, you know, I exactly. And you mentioned other great companies that are assisting with that. I thought Chris Golick loved ABM from Demandbase, the CEO. He's a friend of mine there. You, I think you love it even more than him. No, Chris, Chris and I go back, uh, like I said, you know, from the days where they were not even doing advertising. We were, I was one that raised my hand and when they reached out, I said, hey, we're thinking of doing this advertising thing. Do you want to be a beta? And I said, yes, sign me up. So, so I've been a, a fan of Chris and the team ever since. And we've, we've uh, had a, quite a few conversations and discussions about where to take it and so forth. So Chris and his team are absolutely brilliant. They're doing all the right things. Yeah, yeah, great, great guy. He and I stay uh, close friends and we reach out to each other and chat every once in a while. So that is awesome. You mentioned other great companies there. Tech Target, we had Brian Hessian on the podcast from Tech Target mm-hmm. and, you know, love all those uh, industry companies that you mentioned. You mentioned LinkedIn and yeah. we have a signature question on this podcast, Nick. It is called the LinkedIn Pet Peeve Question. What is a message on LinkedIn that gets Nick to say, okay, I'll accept it. I'd love to hear more. Let's set up a meeting. And what is a pet peeve that people utilize LinkedIn for? What's a message that you just hate? On yeah, so I assume by message, you mean like the, the emails, the direct outreach? Is yes. Yeah. So I make it a point um, to never be rude to people, of course. However, um, I never reach out to people I don't know, and, and I expect the same uh, on LinkedIn. It's different than Twitter and everything else. Twitter, you want to have as many followers as, as you want. LinkedIn was designed, uh, and I think is best, at true business networking, right? So to me, I make it a rule not to connect with anyone whom I do not know. Either I've met them or I've talked to them, or somebody else introduces me to them or we've done business together. So I usually don't connect to people unless I know them. Uh, because I think there's value in that. If, if, for example, somebody tells you, for this to be powerful, I can reach out to a friend and say, hey, are you connected to XYZ? If they say yes, I say, great, can you make an introduction? And they say, well, I don't really know. They, they just reached out and I connected. I'm like, well, what good is that? I mean, the, the whole idea is supposed to be a networking tool. <laughs> you know. It's a networking tool by definition. So I don't, so by definition, that's my pet peeve. My pet peeve is the usual message that says, I found you on LinkedIn and our interests seem to match. So what do you say we connect? I say no, because (laughs) I don't know if my interests align with you. I don't know if I can help you. I don't know that you can help me. And I think it breaks the model of what LinkedIn was all about. So that's, that's how I see it. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I, you share my pet peeves uh, on LinkedIn because LinkedIn, I, I love networking. I, 
the fact that there's not conferences kills me or events. Yes, they're virtual. We're still doing that, but I love networking. And that's the same way I test LinkedIn. If you could reach out to me, Nick, and you could say, Hey, Vin, I want to reach out to Stephanie at this company. I see you're in common. I should be able to say, Oh yeah, that's Stephanie. I met her at this, boom, 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 boom. I'd be happy to make an introduction for you. So I, I, guard my network very uh, closely yes. so and i'm happy to be a part of your network so thank you for that a other question not a question but we love talking about this on the marketing stir we believe in this so much at starista as a company and both aj and i individually the work that you're doing you were a group buddy at jill's house i'd love to talk about that we love talking about uh charitable work nonprofit organizations. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, let me first say that what, what I uh, did and, and the support that I have for uh, Jill's house is minimal uh, compared to what other people do for that organization. Let, let me tell you what, what that organization is about. It's actually a wonderful organization. They're literally a mile down the road from me. They're an organization is affiliated with the church, but they're non-denominational. They're, they're really just focused on the people. They're all about helping the families of children with disabilities, uh, mental disabilities, uh, get a break. And what does that mean? Like when, you know, when you have a, a child with disabilities, you know, all parents, like you, you're a young parent yourself, you know the kind of love we feel for our children, right? So imagine, you know, that all of your energies are going into your child. Now, a child with disabilities has a lot more needs. It's a lot more draining than it is for you and I to care for our children. So those parents deserve a break. And the break that they get is a place where they can bring their children to have fun for the weekend or an overnight stay or even during the week when the school is off or whatever and they have activities and games and, and staff who really, really pay attention to the children and they spend quality time with them. So the children look at that almost as a mini vacation uh, and, that's, and that's it. Um, and you know, I'm, I was simply a volunteer, uh, I was called a buddy, basically just hanging out with the children. That was my only uh, job. And the reason I say was is because now during COVID they had to um, uh, they had to uh, put it on pause uh, because of all the obvious uh, challenges. So um, you know, I, and I got busy at work as well. So I, I I was more active for a couple of years. It's been about a year now that I've been inactive, especially with my new job. But uh, they're also offline right now. At least they're off in terms of the operation. But I want to re-engage with them because it's such a good cause. And those people are such good people. They're all volunteers and the parents pay uh, nothing if, if, if they can't afford it. So it's really, really a good place uh, for children and for the parents who care for them. And Nick, as a final question for you, you mentioned you're an immigrant. And the last one we ask is just to get to know you a little bit more personally. So we'd love to know a little bit about your personal background, what you enjoy doing, and any final thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I was born and raised on the island of Cyprus uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean. So, uh, you know, I, I came uh, to the States uh, to go to college and uh, I've been here ever since. And 
in the 1800s, AJ? <laughs> <laughs> is that even a country nick that exists <laughs> but, uh, no it's uh, in cyprus for those who know it's a very very small island um it is a an independent country it's only it's less than a million people uh greek heritage which is what the uh the corinthian helmet is uh, for in the background so you know, I'm pretty proud. My kids make fun of my uh, how, the level of pride that I bring with being uh, having a Greek uh, background, Greek Cypriot background. So, uh, you know, they say when you immigrate to a country beyond a certain point, you, usually they say 14, 15 years old, you never really shared that origin, right? Not that I want to, but you can also tell it in my accent, you know, 35 years here and I still can't speak English with a decent accent, but um, that's what happens. Um, Proud uh, Greek Cypriot American. Very nice. I, I'm uh, I'm proud of Italian heritage. So Greeks, Italians, we always have something in common. Great food and you know, prideful heritage. That's Nick Panayi, ladies and gentlemen. Nick, that's it. You did a great job. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, guys. It's been a blast. Really, a lot of fun. Thank you. That is Nick. He, again, is the Chief Marketing Officer of Amelia, uh, formerly IPSoft. That's AJ Gupta, our CEO. I'm Vincent Petrofessa, the Vice President of B2B Products here at Starista. This has been The Marketing Stir. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to The Marketing Stir podcast by Starista. Please like, rate, and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email us at info at themarketingstir.com. Thanks for listening.